Welcome to this episode of BeaverPod with Brad Hill. Hello everyone, welcome to this Beaver podcast. My name's Brad Hill and I'm relaunching the podcast. I really wanted to do this because I see this as an opportunity to talk to vets and equine team members about what makes them tick in practice. But before I get on to that, I'll do a little bit of an introduction about myself. I was in practice for a number of years doing equine ambulatory work and working in a hospital setting. So I feel like I've come across some really interesting, inspiring people. And I've been given this opportunity to talk to to, to some of the, the people that I've met and some of the people that perhaps I haven't met so that I can dig a little bit deeper and, and find out what makes them tick on a, on a daily basis. So hopefully we can empower others within our Beaver membership. So the podcast is going to look at what our guests career is so where they started and where they are now looking at a little bit of their highlights perhaps some of their failures i'll see how how honest and upfront they'll be and hopefully we can then um, look together about strategies that they've put into place so that they can bring their best selves to work on, on a daily basis so thank you for tuning in i'm going to introduce my first guest so this is really really exciting it's Gemma Kirk. Gemma is an equine stud vet who heads up a team in Northamptonshire as part of a, a large equine hospital. But Gemma and I go way back to being at university together and then graduating. And then actually we've maintained our friendship the whole way through. So she's a great first guest. Really excited to have her on board. And I'm now just going to hand straight over to to Gemma. So Gemma, thanks for coming on board with this. I'm going to just set the scene of what I'm doing. So I'm sat in front of my laptop, which I've been doing since I have been teaching because I left equine practice or stepped away from it last uh, last September, the September before. So I'm sat in front of a laptop, which is, is useful or, or something that I'm used to, but I've got my coffee to hand. So Gemma, where, whereabouts are you at the moment? I'm in a very similar position, actually, in front of my computer and with a coffee to my right-hand side, out of my, one of my favourite cups that was a Christmas present from oh, my parents this Christmas. Brilliant. I've got my cup, uh, my special cup, actually, which has got uh, Dachshunds on, so it's, um, it's funny how we kind of attach ourselves to, to things that are comforting. So if we just start by looking at your career, um, obviously, I... I vaguely know which route you've taken so I know that you've ended up heading up a stud team but before that you've done an internship could could you take us right back to that point when you graduated and and where did you where did you go first and what was your initial plan into into equine practice so I guess going right the way back to the beginning I think I wasn't entirely sure whether I wanted to be small or smaller neckline so I was actually initially looking for jobs with smaller neckline um, opportunities um, they didn't come around actually so ended up going into solely equine practice by a little bit by default 
Um, however, always wanting to go into horses to some degree, having grown up with them and things. Um, <clears throat> I think just kind of stepping back even further, you kind of think that, you know, you're going to get your degree and then just be able to get a job. But it, it wasn't that easy um, initially. So we had a bit of time, I think, between graduating in the summer and um, I first started my first job in January. So I actually went to India with a good friend um, from university and we did a little bit of traveling and did a small bit of vet work out there, which was an incredible opportunity, really. Um, and then after a couple of interviews, ended up um, in South Yorkshire in Doncaster, my first time there, um, and was there for about three years in solely kind of first opinion practice we were a satellite practice of a bigger hospital um but had minimal kind of daily involvement with the hospital but the support of um the vets on the on the phone if necessary um so I was there for three years and then kind of reached the point I think where I thought I've been doing this for two three years I'm not sure really whether I'm doing this right um it would be nice to kind of confirm that um, and go and, and experience a bigger hospital so I had a friend actually from university as well who'd done an internship at what was then Arundel Equine Hospital but now Sussex Equine um, and um, did my internship there which was 18 months I think um, and stayed on for a few years there and then um, did four seasons in Australia um, working on a stud farm, so not for a practice, but as um, as a vet that's based um, on the stud itself. Um, there was one other resident vet there who's there all year round and has been for for many years. Um, so I would help him in the in the prime season. So from kind of July, end of July through to December, January time, um, and then I have landed up nearer to home in Northamptonshire, so home's Leicestershire. So I'm now in um, in Northamptonshire and I've been there for longer than I think actually probably for coming five years I think this year. Gosh yeah I, I'd forgotten quite a lot of that actually it's it's funny when you reflect back on on your career and and I think gosh I, I don't remember you, you doing that but if we if I just pick up on the first bit that you mentioned which was the fact that you went abroad after you graduated and you did a little bit of charity work, was it with a friend? I, again, I, I don't I don't recall that, but I think that's a really interesting point and, and something that a lot of new graduates think about doing. So could you just expand on where who did you work for and, and, and what clinical skills did you develop before you then jumped into that first um, equine role? So I guess the skills that weren't predominantly equine, but was just good to kind of get involved with the veterinary industry to some degree. Um, and it was going to India was kind of um, in Kerala, um, Tamil Nadu, so the southern kind of part of India. Um, and it was for a charity called IPAN, which is India Project for Animals and Nature, which I believe is still continues to, to do work today. Um and we just did a few weeks there, actually, I think a few weeks kind of assisting the charity and um, we took over and donated some supplies there and we're doing all sorts of things like there were buffaloes that had been a, had wild cat attacks and there was a monkey that lived on the kind of premises that you had to be careful of because it would attack you and 
there were elephants kind of roaming around that we didn't see kind of in close you know in close confines but funnily enough you know we all idolize elephants and think how beautiful and majestic they are which of course they are but they're also kind of thought of a little bit of pests who could come and run through and ruin the camp so it was quite you know it was interesting but the most part of the hands-on vet work we did was um just neutering clinics so government kind of instigated um spaying and neutering clinics which was pretty rough and ready there would be um just young guys that would have the dog catching ropes and catch the wild dogs from the village kind of chuck them in this big van take them to like these um kind of outdoor temporary surgical facilities um and then they'd all have a rabies injection long acting antibiotic anti-inflammatory and be neutered or spayed um under general anesthesia like on a wooden table with their kind of legs tied to the you know each corner of the table fully anaesthetized but it was just um yeah quite um basic um yeah, so that was the main. Part. Gosh, that sounds like a a real life experience as as well as the the vet experience. Um, yeah, I can't imagine what it must be like doing vet work out there. It certainly it certainly sounds extremely different um, to what we're used to and very different welfare standards. Did, is if you looked back on that that period now, what do you think you took from that? Did did it sort of refine your thoughts about where you wanted to start so did it make you think well I don't want to do small animal now after that experience I'm definitely going to stick to my equine um, decision what, 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 what do you think it did for you in terms of focusing you at that very early stage I think to be honest you know at that young age when you have no experience it's quite hard to kind of draw you know two significant conclusions from it, it was all just quite you know a fun and eye-opening experience um certainly welfare was was a big thing that was kind of quite shocking really I mean there was a horse with an open fracture at the side of the road which you know we just don't see that you know in this country and um horses with overlong feet and shoes hanging off and it was hard I think to make significant impact and with what we had and the amount of time and obviously you've got minimal experience to add but um it was an incredible experience to to do um and a great thing to kind of fill in the time where you know unable to get a job and great to kind of do something like that um i think culturally it's just as a human being you know it's, it was just um a good cultural experience it's it's a very eye opening but in like enriching experience and I think one of the kind of main things I thought was that India, I imagine it to be very dry and nothing growing there. And it was just kind of the colours everywhere. There's all the lorries were dressed up in like fresh flower, like garlands and the just colours of the fruit and the flowers and what was growing there. It was just amazing. I mean, obviously very um, specific to the area I was in, but um, but still was I think just it was just very it was a very interesting life um, experience. Yeah, it definitely sounds it. Um, so if we then move on to your your first job. Now, I always tell this story. I told it yesterday when I was teaching the final year students about how you and I both went for the same job and I got asked about how to do um, a fetlock DP x-ray um, and I didn't say that you needed to angulate um, the machine to lift the sesamoid. So um, I, I put down the fact that I didn't get that job to the fact that I got that question wrong but you did get that job so we 
we were competitive for that job and you won out. Um, but I managed to bag a job in the same area and we both then moved in and, and started our equine ambulatory careers. So you, you talked about, you know, perhaps finding it a little bit tough on, or not having all the answers. Do you want to just ex- expand on that a little bit more? Yeah, I think, I mean, it's, uh, it's looking back, you know, you ju- you've just got to get going, really. You just have literally got to get going. But it's, um, you know, when you're there in the back of the car and you've got, you know, your, your first colic at six in the morning and you're staying in this new place that's got hardly any heating and it's got like condensation on the inside of the window and then this kind of really quite fearsome local tra- racehorse trainer calls you up and there you are at your first colic and um you know it's a reasonably valuable to them young racehorse with its career ahead of it and you're there thinking you know I know what drugs to give and I know vaguely how to do a basic examination and basic work upon this but you're there you know going back to car thinking got to work the doses out I don't you know don't even know how many mils of of whatever you're doing so not only are you having to find a place in area you don't know you're dealing with a client you've never met in an incredibly kind of quite stressful experience. This was quite overtly colicky, which colicky, which I think does make it a little bit more stressful. And um, you're there having to calculate drug doses at the back of your car and then um, tubing the horse for the first time, you know, in real life, thinking, am I going to put all this fluid onto its lungs? It's It's quite, you know, but that will be the same for anybody wherever they are the first time they do anything. But I think um, it seems in the most part, as far as I understand, but I don't know about all practices everywhere, but there appears to be maybe a bit more um, available support for new graduates now. I mean, that was 12 years coming 13 years. So I think things have changed for the better in terms of support to make you feel more comfortable in those situations. I mean, thankfully, it was all fine. Um, In a way, it was a overtly colicky reasonably high heart rate and I can remember it now and a pelvic flexure impaction on rectal so I was quite pleased with myself for kind of ascertaining all of this so I thought okay well we'll just tube it some fluids and see how we get on and um, I tubed it some fluids and within about an hour of me tubing at the fluids it had you know started colicking incredibly um, you know uh, fiercely again having had all the pain meds um so it ended up being referred to the hospital and having an epiploic foramen entrapment with a secondary pelvic flexure impaction, which wasn't probably the most straightforward of first colic um, introductions to colics. But um, yeah, I can still remember it now. But um, I'm, I'm hoping that there's a bit more support maybe available. Um, and I guess there gets to a point where you you just need to um, crack on and get going. Yeah, it's such an interesting point that, and and I, I've got lots of imagery now in my head. I can almost see you there, sort of dealing with your first colic, and I can certainly see myself. So, I'd never passed a nasogastric tube before I graduated, and I used to come back to the practice wearing my um, my shirts that I proudly had, had bought, and I was wearing a new shirt every day, um, and and every day that I went to see a colic I would come back with blood all over my shirt because um, I was causing nosebleeds every time I tried to pass a stomach tube so those experiences yeah it's it's interesting because when you even when you talk about them I start to then think gosh I remember my first visit which was to see um, a gypsy pony 
um, tied to the back of a trailer, which is quite intimidating. And and it and I suppose it does come back to that balance between needing to get going and and develop these skills and 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 having that balanced support. Um, which is hopefully something that that I feel like I can have an, an influence on now in terms of developing those skills for new graduates. But it, it and I know that Beaver are doing loads at, at supporting them when they graduate. So I think we are moving in the, the right direction. But w- w- did there sort of come a point when you felt that you know enough was enough? You you were fed up with perhaps being a jack of all trades, and 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 they and you wanted to to just be better. It, and that's why you went back to do an internship or do you remember that kind of moment where you thought you know I'm not going to continue in this first job because I want I want to change my my um, direction yeah I don't think it was about um, changing direction it was about consolidating what you knew and seeing whether that you were doing it kind of right and if you could be any better um, and just gaining experience knowing that you know hopefully if you were at one of the bigger hospitals in the country that what you were doing there with a team of professionals was kind of deemed kind of right and the best so rather than trudging along on my own trying to you know hopefully make some good decisions just make sure that they were or work out where I could change what I did or do it any better or seek assistance from more experienced more qualified people really and just broaden the horizons and also to see the hospital side of things which you know I'd seen minimal amounts of in my first job so um yeah it was just trying to consolidate and and learn really and it, it definitely did it definitely did do that yeah, and no, I think that's a, a, a another interesting point is that we get new graduates that don't know whether to do an internship first or get stuck in and, like you said, get going in practice and then come back to the internship. And I think I'm right in saying that Rossdale's accept uh, will only accept um, people for their internship program if they've done a, a stint of time in practice. So. I don't know is is there any way around that you think is better do you if you look back on that do you think you should have done your internship first or would you you not change what you did no don't you so I only know what I did and it I felt that it worked well for me in that situation um I think looking back I would would have possibly been more organized as a student rather than having just the great best time all the time um I could have potentially tried to get something organized and lined up you know um internship wise for when I graduated um that didn't happen so it kind of just fell that this was the way around that I did it I guess um it would have taken if you did an internship first if at all that is possible in some clinics at least you can go to your first call knowing that you know how much butte a normal size horse has and you're not having to worry as much about executing the individual tasks like working out the drug doses and passing an azogastric tube and rectaling horse because you've got those under your belt and you can concentrate more on the clinical problem um and then of course there's a communication side with the with the owners which I think the first job you know taught me a lot about that um so I think it would probably Doing an internship first would probably increase your confidence a bit more 
um, for when you actually go out and have to do it on your own. Um, you know, you might have tubed 50, 100 horses um, before you go and do your own case, um, for instance, um, if you'd have done it the other way around, doing your internship first. But I think, actually, if I'm completely honest, like, we had quite a good setup, really, didn't we, in the sense that because we lived together, as much as work was probably reflection more stressful than we realized at the time because you just kind of got through the days didn't you um because we were living together and we then had another friend um nearby as well um because we had the social aspect together it wasn't so daunting but you know you think about people that go to a job three four five hours away from home they know nobody they're sitting at home on call on their own having to go and um, encounter all of these things for the first time on their own I mean I think that's just as a human being I think that's just quite a big challenge you know um, but we were lucky in the fact that we had we didn't I don't think we over talked work actually to be honest really much at all we would do if there was something worrying us or something funny had happened or you know absolutely we'd be there to support each other kind of clinically but um, I think it's just having some camaraderie and something to look forward to and something to lighten up the mood and us having a, a friendly face kind of nearby. Yeah, I, I think you're right. And I think actually what we did do well was that we lived together and we had, you were very good at making really nice dinners. I certainly remember that. I was very much just uh, put it in the oven and or slap it in the microwave, but you were very diligent at that. And, and we used to play squash twice a week. So we were inadvertently probably not aware at the time but we were achieving quite a lot of our well-being goals I don't think we saw them as as that but we we certainly kept our exercise and our our healthy eating up but I I don't think we necessarily saw it as that so I think that's quite a new approach um and 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 again I had a student yesterday say to me oh Brad you know when I start my first job one of my biggest concerns is I don't know whether to be um, away, how far away to be from my family and I said why are you worried about that because when I took my first job I just wanted a job wherever and, and he said well because I, I, I want I want to have I want to be able to support them and and we sort of went round the houses a bit with this conversation and I felt a little bit nervous as to pry too much but in the end he said to me Brad I, d- I, d- I don't want to be lonely um, in my first job and I, and I think you've just picked up on that quite nicely that that we weren't lonely because we were kind of like the three musketeers just comparing our um, our sort of mistakes and things that we'd done well and things that we'd learned from. And we were sharing knowledge that whole way through. And and that was hugely beneficial, I, I think, at the time. Again, not that we realised it. Um, the other thing I think you mentioned, which I think is important, thinking about the internship versus ambulatory role first, is that... I certainly never, after 10 years of being in practice, felt confident, really confident putting a, a catheter in. So I used, I still now, if I had to euthanize a horse today, would um, do it off the needle with a big cow-sized um, needle, which I know for many people listening to this might be a bit of a shock. But I think that comes back to that point that we've just said or highlighted, that those basic skills, sometimes you just never really get that confident at them like passing well not necessarily passing stomach to but for me putting catheter in so there are pros and cons to um to both routes into into uh, your equine role so then then thinking about your stud um interest Gemma 
where did that start and how, how did you manage to get yourself into the, the point where you were heading up a team which is what you do now and and, and you um I know you'll be very humble but you you do do an incredible job and you've developed the that side in your practice so um uh yeah how how could you inspire others to follow in your footsteps if they're listening to this podcast um I think it came initially from my kind of um interest in endocrinology and how something stimulates something's release and something antagonizes the release of that and I just found the way that it happens in a kind of cyclic pattern very interesting so kind of translating that to reproductive hormones I just found it quite interesting which led my elective project to be in reproduction um, and um, that was um, undertaken at Hobgoblin's um, stud um, which is managed by Madeline Campbell so that's where my I guess my initial um, interest came from and where I took it kind of that step further while I was at university um, and was exposed to it more than perhaps um, others might have been um, I, I also remember going and seeing practice and thinking how cool it was that you went to these beautiful studs and how great it was that you got to see the same people every day, you know, so you built up a bit of a rapport with whoever you were dealing with. Um, on reflection, I'm not sure whether those rapports are ever quite as great as you see them um, when um, you're a student, because ultimately, if you are fulfilling that job as a stud vet, um, it brings with it a reasonable amount of pressure and there is always a reasonable amount of politics um, with those type of relationships. Um, but yeah that's where my interest kind of came and then um, in my first job I think I did a couple of AI mares and, and ironically I mean you couldn't really write it the first mare I was to get in full was with a stallion that was collected from at Hobgoblin Stud by by Madeline so um, it would kind of went full circle really which was um, which was quite entertaining you know it was the client's choice um, I had no say in it but um I knew the stallion and I'd worked with him and then I was there inseminating the semen for my first AI mare. I remember we got her second cycle in foal and um yeah, it was just quite a nice um quite a nice full circle um event really. Looking back, I mean, you know, you're kind of winging it compared to how you do the mares now and how diligent you know and how many mares you've scanned and how much experience you've got and still they kind of surprise you and do weird things but um yeah it was uh and so it only did a very very small amount of reproductive work in the first job um and then Arundel did my internship with no reproductive work really at all um and then went to Australia from there I was always interested in going to Australia um to to do some mare work and also just to work in you know in a different hemisphere and experience different parts of the world um and I guess my numbers increase from there my first year actually was primarily looking after the hospital um well in fact the whole time I was there was was looking after the hospital so there was a an area that we called the hospital and site where all the mares would fall down um and we'd be falling like around 200 a year so you would be based there and doing all the peripartum mares um so any sick foals any mares that were sick pre or post foaling um and the exposure there was just like incredible. So I did minimal scanning um, 
in my first year of mares, um, but obviously had great exposure to other things and that extrapolated on, <clears throat> excuse me, from my um, time in the hospital at Arundel Equine Hospital, because um, you were familiar with, with those types of procedures and doing those types of things. Um, and then just built on the mare numbers thereafter. And um, like I say, there was the two vets and, and um, the other vets, um, I actually, the, the kind of link came because the vet that I was assisting in Australia on the vinery, it was at Vinery Stud, had been one of the partners at Arundel Equine Hospital. So that was kind of the link, how it all came to be. Um, and he did the majority of the scanning, to be honest, for, for the first few years. And I just picked up my exp scanning experience from there and, and then brought it forward. Um, but I think it's kind of, for me, it's quite nice to do the stud side and other things um to keep your kind of eyes open um and to just to keep you stimulated in in other areas um so that wouldn't be the only work that i do um but certainly is a main chunk of the work in the in the summer and was in australia but you know you saw everything on australia i've seen in injuries worse than any injuries i've seen anywhere else not due to bad management but just due to the way that the horses are managed out there in in huge huge acreage you know with with wire fences um in herds you know you just see more injuries in 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 that in that kind of environment and um so it was great exposure to, to everything really yeah so it's uh, it's interesting what you said about the the link so you you've used that word that um that Arundel linked you then to your stud role and then you obviously had some support from 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 Madeline or, or Maddie as, as as she's also known I think one of the main reasons I wanted to do this podcast actually was that during lockdown obviously CPD has been online and and a lot of the CPD I remember going to in the very early stages of our career and I think we've been to a few together um Yes, it's great CPD and you enjoy the lectures, but for me, the often the fun bit was actually just having those conversations around a bar or in the having the evening meal or even dancing on the dance floor with Jonathan Pycock um, and, and building those relationships and then those links that, that can be really valuable to, to, to your next step. So um, do you think that... What 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 what's your kind of opinion on that? Do you think that those were the links that that kind of Arundel link to then Australia, then with the support of Maddie? Is that how you ended up in that in that role? And 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 if that was the link for anyone listening out here out that that's struggling because they haven't got those CPD opportunities, how would you suggest they go about developing those links? Because they, I think they are quite can be quite instrumental yeah I think you know it's that whole phrase of it's not what you know and who you know and, and admittedly you've got to educate yourself as best as you can and make yourself as um, appealing if you're trying to get a job as, as you can but equally I think you know if you want to do something like do uh, an internship at what was Arundel Equine Hospital or you want to do go and work in Australia you know you I think trying to find somebody that's done it and then jumping you know finding out as much information as them as you can so I know that you helped somebody recently they wanted to do an internship at Randwick Equine in Sydney and one of my good friends did an internship there and it just takes somebody to speak to somebody to speak to somebody else and it just gets it just helps build up some momentum really and sadly you know it kind of is a little bit 
who you know in that sense that just to get things rolling in in your direction um so I think just kind of try and speak to as many people as you can whether it's at the university whether it's with vets that were in the year above that you know that are in practice or whether it's by um communicating on some form of online platform or or whatever just trying to um, communicate with people that have done something similar to what you want to do and and kind of talk to them about it ascertain whether it really is what you want to do and then try and go forward with making kind of inroads into into executing it um yeah and i and i think that um hopefully what what this podcast will do will be to provide some information for people listening and, and and build those links so that they they kind of know where to, to 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 look and go if they if they want to try and find out some more information about their career path so again i'm thinking back to sort of times that we've been to beaver balls etc and i i just love that camaraderie that that develops between individuals within beaver and the wider profession because you realize that you're all in the same boat together and I think you and I, Gemma, we, we sat on the table with Maddie when she was Beaver president. Um, uh, I certainly think we'd all had quite a few drinks, and again, it was a it was another kind of moment of of unity. So um, it can be quite empowering. I, I don't know if if you're reflecting back on that night as much as I am, but I can't remember that the specific details, if I'm honest. But um, we definitely had been to a few Beaver balls. Yeah, and I think I think they're just great fun. Ho- hopefully. And we'll get out of this uh, ridiculous pandemic and um, we'll get back to that. Working that through into like, you know, working in practice today, you know, it is just so isolating at the moment. And you, you do take for granted all of those things where, you know, you're going out for dinner with drugs reps and, you know, the practice are getting together and, you know, you're just having a bit more social outside of work, you know, even just that, you know outside of seeing your friends on a more social basis like any form of social that happened within just your workplace um you know rather than on the wider equine you know british equine friendly association meetings or congress or whatever it you know there is just minimal opportunity to to socialize or interact or do anything other than work but i guess we are fortunate to be able to go to work compared to others um that are confined to the house or their homes yeah yeah I, th- I think that's a you know a, a really valid point I, I certainly know my, my other half isn't getting to go out at all out of the house so, so at least I'm getting to go and teach practicals face to face dressed up in so much PPE all you can do is see my eyes or but it, but at least I'm getting to do that interaction and, and as you said you're getting that interaction with your team members and and clients and I think for for, for anyone feeling isolated, there are um, lo- loads of support networks and, and certainly Beaver have been really good at, at, at providing loads of stuff via social media. So um, you, you definitely can build those links um, even during lockdown. Um, I'm going to um, move on and, and, and ask you to, um, to, to tell me if you can think of um, some of your failures. I'm going to um, ask you to think of three if you can. Um, and I, and the way I'd like to look at this is actually that the fact that, that although at the time you saw them as a failure that they 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 turned out to be a positive because I think if we all look at, at failure in that light then we can realise that it actually then reshaped us and and redirected us so and we can learn from them so is is there anything if you look back on 
what you've done up to this point um that you can think well that was a bit of a failure and it might be a clinical case or it might be a wrong decision that what would you say is the first one that comes to light I think in a way like failure to get a job immediately was opened up then the door to go to India so I guess that's a very immediate one um, which we've kind of covered so lack of one opportunity no way for another and do, and do you remember that did you apply to a job initially and so did you remember that that rejection oh, moment yeah like sending out hundreds of CVs hundreds well hundreds no I take that back but it felt like hundreds at the time but many many you know and doing your covering letter times by you know 10 15 however many times and trying to be as enthusiastic on the 20th one as you were on the first and just kind of feeling you know you were were you ever going to get that first job it was I mean it was a long time ago but it was it was challenging um got there in the end but um I guess that was a good thing to do in the interim the India trip yeah that that yeah and that, well that said that's your first failure isn't it really that initial coming out of the start blocks graduating thinking that you could just well hopefully try and nail that first job not being as straightforward and then actually changing your direction and heading off into to to India um and and, and and if we then think about a second one so that was that was quite a nice first one which I think we can all um empathize with what about a, a second one is there anything that you then think, gosh, that that was a bit of a a disaster at the time or not quite how you expected it. I think with all things, you know, whether there's one specific example, but, you know, it will happen when you're doing procedures to horses that something happens in that procedure where, you know, you end up leaving the horse in a worse situation than when you arrived, which is not what anybody ever wants to do you know we are trying to make things better and help the animal and the owners and if ever you do anything that seemingly fails to make the horse better or makes the horse worse um you know you you just feel so awful about that I mean giving a horse a nosebleed having passed a nasogastric tube I mean is actually really not a failure however it's funny how owners will reflect on that because the fact that you've treated your horse for their horse for colic and it had a mild impaction and you've now you know given it some nasogastric fluids um and you've given them a plan and and you know you've talked to them about the whole case probably the only thing that they'll remember is that the horse has got a nosebleed and that's all they'll be worrying about is trying to put something up its nose and stop its nose bleeding where it's just funny of what possibly clients will consider as as failures or or what's aesthetically kind of concerning for for them I mean that's a very light example of going to a a a call and making things worse because effectively hopefully you've made it a lot better um but and also I guess failing to achieve what you want to achieve you know and going to some calls and you know the horse's name and it's a three-year-old and it's hardly you know halter broken and it's a windy rainy day and you're trying to just see it in walk and it's you know that's taken you 30 minutes just to do that and you kind of drive away thinking well I couldn't even touch the horse to flex it up and we barely saw it trotting in a straight line um to work out what leg it's lame on but I guess you can only do what you can do in those situations um equally I think one of the most like haunting times whether it was a failure or not was I I will I remember going through this in incredible detail with you was when there was 
called in the morning early to an old, old pony that I'd actually met a few times before, had a lot of dental issues that was kind of on his last legs down and effectively dying. But you're there, you know, a few months out with a down horse, having not put many catheters in, um, which is on the brink of death with minimal blood pressure, trying your heart out to get some form of drug into a vein and get some venous access and just kind of failing miserably to do that and the whole process just felt like it took forever I can't actually even remember I must have been able to get a catheter in it in the end or, or something happened because I'm pretty sure the pony did either die or was put to sleep but um it um was just felt like the whole time just stopped and you felt so helpless and there was these emotional people that loved this pony and all you wanted to do is end its suffering and you were just struggling and trying your best but kind of failing to make any progress it was just um it was just awful but I guess in practice just sometimes you know those situations present and you can't do any more than you can do and you know that young horse that's three four years old and it's raining and windy and you can't see it trot you know it's it's not your fault that you can't fix it because you can only do what you can do in the circumstances you're given but um yeah yeah that yeah that those are those are great um failures and actually you've reframed them really really well so that idea that um you don't want to leave a horse in a worse state than when you arrived immediately i think about the, the one spectacular rectal tear that i caused um which didn't end well but again that that was a a great not a great example but a very strong example of that and was was tough and then I, I think um the idea again your third failure which you talked about which is not achieving what you set out to achieve or struggling to achieve that and I think we've all it makes me think of doing your vetting and not being able to do the ophthalmic part because actually you've just got the horse's head half in a in a tack room because there's no dark stable and trying to do your job so it, it is hard but uh but but it sounds like you're quite good at sort of reframing those now and looking back on those and being able to distinguish what you had control over and, and not control over so um how, how have you managed to get to that point of of sort of rationalizing those um those situations and, and sort of dealing with it is that something that you've learned to do over time or does that come with the experience or have you have you taught yourself in a way to be to be dare I say it more resilient? I think it's been a huge learning curve to be honest I mean I think that anybody well certainly I would be lying if I said that this was easy and that I've got it all sussed and it's it's great and I just go to work and come back and it's all you know happy days all the time I think it's it's pretty tough and it is challenging and every day is different and I think when you have those things interestingly that you spoke about on tap earlier that when we were young vets and just out we had like an incredible social life we exercised you know we did a lot of things that we didn't at the time consider to be valuable but we just did them because we did them um, and, but now I think you have to take a lot more time into trying to work out exactly kind of the the reason for this podcast of what does get you going and what does help help you out and what does help your mind out and what does help you with resilience and what does fill your cup up rather than empty it and um there are some days that are better than others um this week's not been the best week um for various reasons but um and again a lot of things out of your control you know um 
equipment failures, etc., etc. But you know that is not your fault at the time. It doesn't particularly help. But I think as time's gone on, um, you have had to try and um, yeah work on my own like resilience and work on like reflect on myself more than I ever have done. You know, um, which has been challenging but but interesting and um I think rewarding and eye-opening and um I think from my perspective um there seems to be um a lot more out there in terms of I I remember you know for many years as a young vet just being obsessed with being the best vet as I could ever be you know wanting to do my internship and then trying to read as many papers as I could and then just be the best and the best and the best and then actually when you fail to achieve something it really hurt the most because all you were trying to be was the best um but there seems to be a lot more resources out there now instead of CPD is just on being the best clinically but being about the best form of yourself and the most resilient form um i we went to the rvc both of us didn't we and um on the rvc alumni they, they actually offered a lot of resilience lectures on uh for, for free for the rvc alumni which actually i think to date have possibly been the best um cpd I've, I've ever done um that won't make me better at looking and examining a horse but i feel that it's um helped me to uh, with my resilience and, and approach to um, to practice um, it has helped me, you know, more than than any other CPD I've done. Um, and I think a lot of that was realising that, you know, this isn't, I think everybody's jobs are tough and I think life at the moment is, is tough for everybody. Um, and I don't think you can compare um, any other job or profession to the one you do because I, certainly I don't understand them enough but this profession the one I understand it is is difficult I think on call for me is really difficult um, not having control of your time um, and you know having a nice time and then being sent to something that's miles away that could be you know hugely stressful um, but it's just it's being aware that other people um struggle at times and i think these resilience um webinars that 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 i i accessed in the first lockdown have actually been fundamental in in being aware that other people are struggling and that this is actually tough and we are dealing with death and we're never going to arrive to we are to say oh brilliant can we all look at these lovely horses that are doing ever so well and how great and they're all doing because you're cool generally when there's something going on so people are already you know in a slightly anxious upset um, negative mindset and then you've got to arrive and try and pacify the situation and make it better so it is a challenging profession and I think it's nice to know um, that other people also are struggling or that you know it is only normal that we have to do things to try and help ourselves out to to get the best out of, our, out of ourselves, to perform the best as we can and get the most out of our lives. Um, so I found those really interesting. Um, I'm sure there are lots of other ones and I know um, like um, there are just lots of other resources that I'm probably not aware of, but there is more seemingly for me, there's more out there than there ever has been before. And hopefully that will only only help people. And I you know, would urge people if they're thinking about logging on you know to, to do so because it really has helped me out anyway yeah I think thanks for sharing that I think there's loads of stuff that you've said there that will be hugely helpful to to the listeners I, I, and the only thing I would argue is that you said that you wouldn't be better at examining a horse but having done those and I think you would you are better because you're in a better headspace so I think 
just by being fully present when you're examining a horse means that you can give, you can give it your best and and 100% attention so um and that's sometimes yeah. what is difficult when you've been when you've been on call and you've got other baggage going on in your head so so yeah thank you for sharing that because I think that's hugely important so um we're coming towards the end um of the podcast but I, I just want to sort of finish on a slightly different tact there's loads going on in the profession that it's very difficult to keep up to speed with. I always think, you know, we're so lucky in the vet world that, that it's ever-changing, it's exciting, there's new literature, and I'm lucky because I, I probably have more time than you to, to look at this, this you know, new information or new science that's emerging. I read in the Vet Times this morning that um, I think there was a comment that Dave Rendell had made about the uh, the old worming plans that we used to see on all the stable tack rooms and feed rooms about you know worming for tapeworm twice a year and you know sticking rigidly and clients on reflection would were just completely overdosing the the use of of anthelmintic so we've moved on in that area and that and that's amazing really when you you think in quite a short space of time we're almost doing a 360 degree um uh, uh, uh sort of change on that but is there anything in the profession that you think is particularly exciting that you would like to share? Anything that I, I know that you've done quite a lot of work with the stallions and that kind of uh, is something that you're developing. Is there anything that you'd like to share that you, that has excited you particularly over the last weeks, months um, in in the equine world? Um, well, I, I'm not sure there's kind of one thing that I can um touch on in terms of going forward but in in what we've already achieved you know we were we were um exposing film and developing film in our first jobs you know and now I mean we're lucky where I am we have got very good equipment um I'm not sure it's the same in every practice but we do um have some good equipment but I can effectively x-ray a horse in the middle of a field with no power and and get an image up on a on a screen and I think like that's just phenomenal really um in terms of how we've come in the digital age and what we can offer and the service that we can provide um the quality of the digital radiography and um it's just quite a massive leap really um you know if you hadn't got the right views before you'd have to go back to the horse and re-x-ray it the next day you couldn't just take another shot could you it was um it's just literally transformed the way that we can image horses um and you know our our ultrasound scanners we used to be wheeling them around on a you know big trolley on they used to be super heavy i mean i remember asking uh, and this was actually not that long ago but i had this geriatric machine for the first year when i was in australia and um trying to get the guys at the stud to hold it and you know they'd barely be able to hold it for the length of time it would take you to scan a mare because it's so heavy and now we've got these little amazing scanners that are battery powered and super light and you can just chuck in a bag over your shoulder and off you go to the next mare. So I think that's um it's been an incredible um improvement and I wouldn't be um the most knowledgeable about this by any means, but I think we've we've been def- very we've improved our diagnostics hugely in terms of orthopedic conditions, but I think in more recent kind of couple to three or five years what we can actually do to treat um, lame horses or for orthopedic conditions has improved hugely, like with the um, 
synthetic polymer that you can put into joints and and now regenerative therapies so stem cells into into joints and things and hopefully that will continue and help us actually try and fix them rather than just diagnosing the the problem yeah it seems um it's mind-blowing really when you start thinking in terms of um sort of subject areas or uh you know when you start even talking about orthopedics and then talking about joints within orthopedics i i feel like i'm lagging behind i've got fomo already because not being on the front line i'm i'm probably missing out which um is my own insecurities and i'm sure if i stepped back into your practice there'd be a lot of the kit there that i think gosh um this ultrasound machine isn't isn't what i um, looked at and i've only been out of it for just over 12 months so yeah it, it's really exciting and i think it, it just shows the speed at which the profession changes and and and, and hopefully it makes your day-to-day job that much easier because like you said you're not having to repeat x-rays or drive back to the practice and so it, it can only be a, a really positive thing and i think it's it's um it's good to kind of just realize where you've come from and and, and kind of where you you go to or where we are now okay so we're we're uh, i don't want to keep you too much longer Gemma. but is there any um take-home message i just want to leave the listeners um and thank you very much for listening to this first podcast on what makes you tick is there any final message or top tip you would leave for the listeners um Gemma, if we're thinking overall about um what what makes us tick and what makes us um be the best we can be in our day-to-day jobs what what would you say to to the listeners I think it's kind of along the same lines to what we were talking about just kind of one step previously is that and what you um, kind of um, summarised is that, you know, taking your best self to the horse. Although those um, CPDs and webinars about resilience, I was saying, you know, we're not I wasn't upskilling myself clinically, but it's trying to be kind of the the best version of yourself, which then affect does improve um the quality of the service but I, I think for me it's trying to be look after yourself know that it's a challenging career and try and look after yourself as, as best you can and, and try and get work to work for you get practice to work for you and try and try and decipher how you can get it to work for you rather you know so you can work alongside practice and the profession opposed to kind of um there being friction between between the two and I think also just opening your eyes up and looking after yourself as a as a as a human being and and kind of catering to your needs of exercising eating well maintaining social connections um being creative being outdoors being with the dog whatever it is you know just try and um do as much as you can to keep yourself on track and being aware that it is challenging and you need to be on form yourself and look after yourself and and try and make practice work for you rather than you know um, having it cause friction in in your in your life um and i i think for me when i've opened my um eyes and ears up to things that are not clinical all the time so i i think fortunately i, I don't claim to know everything about everything at all um, and I think doing CPD and, and trying to um, increase your knowledge clinically is very important, but also 
you know, out of work or alongside work just to open your mind up to other stuff going on. So there's so many good podcasts. I mean, this is a, a new one for Beaver, but just in, in the world out there, there's so many good and interesting podcasts just to open your mind up. Like I've just opened my mind up to other things and other ways of, of, of thinking and other ideas and just kind of feels like I can let my um, mind breathe a little bit because there's more, there's more out there in the world. And it's incredibly important the job we do, but it is only a job. So get it to work for you and um, listen and feel and be aware of other stuff that's out there. You know, there's an incredible podcast I listen to um, called Feel Better, Live More, which is actually a recommendation for a friend who also um, used to practice in equine practice. Um, and that's um, it's actually run um, or hosted by a, a GP. And I think the work that he's doing is just incredible. and um he's got a few books out he's called Rangan Chatterjee um and he just speaks to some incredibly interesting people and it's just really good for um opening up your mind to other things going on really we could uh, talk all day about those podcasts because as you can imagine I'm a big fan too but but thank you Gemma I think you've been really really you know in, inspiring and, and I think you've um talked so openly about um how you've got to a point now where you're 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 I would suggest thriving in practice. You've got your resilience bucket, you've got your tools, and and um and you're now bringing your best self to work, which which I can only think is a is a benefit to your employer, um as as well, and and the whole practice because I think if you understand yourself and and you know what what you need, um uh, then you can be you can you can be a real asset to your to your team, and I'm sure that um. Um, and they would agree. Um, and, and just thinking about what you said about those important things, I think we were probably doing the important things however many years ago when we started out, which is, is it 12 years ago in our first jobs? We were playing squash, we were eating healthy, but we didn't realise, we didn't label those as, as well-being goals. We just did them. But I think now we, we know that, that, that actually they're incredibly important, those basic um those basic tools that, that that set you up for for getting up in the morning and, and, and getting into work with your your best um, hat on. So I'm going to leave it there. Thank you very much um, to Gemma, and thank you very much for listening. and And I look forward to to hopefully presenting the next guest soon. Thank thank you very much. Bye. Okay, it's a pleasure. This episode of Beaver Pod was produced by Beaver. For more details on the benefits of your Beaver membership and the products and services offered, please go to our website at www.beaver.org.uk.